0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Seem, podcast editor for the Blue Journal. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast, which discusses an interesting article published in the December 1st, 2015 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. The article is entitled, Characteristics and Outcomes of Eligible Non-Enrolled Patients in a Mechanical Ventilation Trial of Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. I'm joined by the study's first author, Dr. Yasin Arabi, who is the chairman of the intensive care department at King Saud Abdulaziz University for Health Sciences, as well as the co-author of the accompanying editorial for Dr. Arabi's paper, Dr. Michael Lanspa, who is a critical care faculty member at Intermountain Medical Center in Utah, and the associate web director for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Dr. Arabi, I wanted to kick off the podcast with a question for you. In your study, the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, at least in my opinion, looked at a fascinating question. What happens to patients who are eligible for but not enrolled in a randomized clinical trial? In this case, your group looked at patients screened for oscillate, which compared ventilation with a high-frequency oscillator to conventional ventilation. I'd ask you how your group came up with this question and what was your hypothesis going into the study?
1: Patients who meet inclusion and exclusion criteria for a clinical trial but for one reason or another are not enrolled in the trial, these are the eligible not-randomized patients, are an interesting group to study They're important because this group may affect the study in several ways. If you have too many eligible non-randomized patients, you may have problems with generalizability, especially if the patients who are eligible non-randomized differ from the enrolled patients, and especially if the reasons for non-enrollment is influenced somehow by the treatment. In addition, obviously, if you have too many eligible non-randomized patients, this may slow down your clinical trial, may have effect on cost as well. But uh, for our study, we were interested at patient level impact of non-enrollment. And that's an interesting question because at least one of the reasons for non-enrollment is that some physicians select not to enroll their patient in a clinical trial because of the perception that their choices for therapy might be superior to enrolling patients in the clinical trial. So for example, uh, enrolling patients in the oscillate, for example, if if I am a treating physician, I may select to choose to keep the patient outside the trial because I feel that putting him on high-frequency oscillator or conventional ventilator, whatever my bias is, is superior to enrolling him in the clinical trial. Now, this perception has never been validated, and it's possible to the opposite, and that's basically the hypothesis of our study, is that enrolling the patient to the clinical trial may be a better thing, may provide a a survival advantage. So in a trial where the intervention is protocolized, is evidence-based, is using practices that are supported by clinical trial, in, case, in our case, for example, lung protective strategy is known to be associated with better survival. Then in that case, enrolling patient, the clinical trial may be actually a better thing for patient. So that's the underlying reason for doing our study. We were very fortunate, at least in the oscillate, to have a protocolized therapy. And because we have a group of eligible, not randomized, we sought to look at what happened to these patients? Is their outcome influenced by being non-enrolled versus enrolled in the trial? And I think that's a, a very important question to answer.
0: Well, thank you for that, Dr. Robbie. So I, I would be curious, I, I guess I'll ask you a two-part question, I'd be curious as, as to what your hypothesis was going into the study in terms of what happens to those eligible but not enrolled patients. And, and can you describe to us briefly how you designed the study to follow this group of patients who were eligible but not enrolled?
1: So the main hypothesis is that patients who were eligible but not randomized in the trial have different outcome, have possibly worse outcome, compared to the patient enrolled in the, in the Ocelet trial. And the reason for this hypothesis is that the enrollment provides a protocolized care that is evidence-based. So what we've done is basically we looked at the patients who were enrolled in the trial. Obviously, some of them were randomized to be in the high-frequency oscillation. Some of them were randomized to the conventional ventilation. And we looked also at the eligible non-randomized patients. And these patients, we have some data collected at baseline and we did have some additional data, not extensive amount of data, some additional data about whether they were at any time during their ICU stay receive the conventional ventilation or high frequency oscillation. So we know what patient, how patients were ventilated in both groups and we knew their outcomes. So we, we looked at how these patients differed at baseline. How did their outcome differ? And then uh, because there were some differences in baseline characteristics, we uh, constructed a multivariable model to see what would be the influence of non-enrollment on patient outcomes. Another part of the study was to look at what organizational factors influence non-enrollment, i.e. in centers that have high enrollment rate. Was there a reason for it? Could we find some of, organizational factors? Is it because they have too many other studies, for example? Is it because they have limited number of staff? Is it because they were simply not documenting this? And doing this in retrospective, it's it's, uh, difficult, but we conducted uh, additional surveys to collect additional data that might help answering this question.
0: Well, thank you so much for that answer, Dr. Arabi. And now Dr. but I'd like to bring you into the podcast We're going to spend the bulk of the time talking today about what happened to these eligible but non-enrolled patients, but I think we should spend a moment talking about what happened in the actual oscillate study. So for our listeners, could you please summarize the oscillate study findings?
2: Sure. The oscillate study was a randomized controlled trial that looked at the effects of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation on adults with acute respiratory distress syndrome, and the rationale for High-frequency oscillatory ventilation is that lower tidal volumes and higher levels of positive end-expiratory pressure are associated with improved survival in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that ventilation strategy is known as lung protective ventilation. And high-frequency oscillatory ventilation is a ventilation technique where we give really small tidal volumes, like 1 to 4 mLs per kg, at very high frequencies, like 3 to 15 times a, a second, and you get constant lung recruitment. And so, therefore, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation theoretically meets the goals of lung protective ventilation. And one of the challenges with the prior literature is that previous studies were either limited by small sample sizes or outdated or non-protocolized conventional ventilation strategies. An example of that is the OSCAR trial, which was the high-frequency oscillation in ARDS. The conventional ventilation wasn't protocolized. One challenge in studying that mode of ventilation is that it's often used as a rescue treatment. A lot of previous studies had demonstrated that there was a high rate of patient crossover from their assigned mode of ventilation, which suggests that the clinicians lacked equipoise regarding therapy. I also think the term rescue therapy is misleading because it implies the therapy is successful, we don't know whether or not that therapy is successful, but the lack of clinician equipoise suggests that someone believed that the patient had certain death if the therapy wasn't undertaken. So at any rate, the Oscillate study, which attempted to correct these limitations in prior trials, looked at about 39 intensive care units in five countries, and they randomized patients with either moderate or severe ARDS to either high-frequency oscillatory ventilation or control ventilation strategy that used a low tidal volume and a high positive end-expiratory pressure. The study initially was designed for 1,200 patients, but it was stopped early at about 550 patients because the group that was randomized to high-frequency oscillatory ventilation had a higher in-hospital mortality. The mortality rates were 47% versus 35% in the control group, which was a relative risk of about one3 and so the patients in the high-frequency oscillatory ventilation group also ended up receiving more sedation, more neuromuscular blockade, and received vasopressors more frequently and for a longer period of time. So high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, which was previously thought to be a very promising therapy for acute respiratory distress syndrome, didn't show any evidence of improved survival and may actually have worsened survival in those patients.
0: Okay, so Dr. Robbie, I think we've left, our listeners in suspense long enough, could you please tell us what you found in your study?
1: So first of all, in the oscillated trial, there were 548 patients eligible and randomized. The interesting thing, there were almost an equal number who were eligible, not randomized, 546. In other words, for each one enrolled and randomized patient, there was one eligible non-randomized patient one-to-one now this was a multi-center study so the the interesting question to look whether this ratio was consistent across all centers and it wasn't there was considerable variation among centers the interquartile range was between 0.35 to 1.8 big big variation so centers varied considerably in the non-enrollment compared to enrolling patients. The main reason for non-enrolling patients in the trial was no informed consent. That was was about 40% of non-enrolled patients. Physician refusal was another second interesting one. It was responsible for around 24% of non-enrollment and 14% of non-enrollment was related to missing the randomization window and there were other reasons. Now, when we looked at the patients who were enrolled and the patients non-enrolled, there were differences at baseline characteristics. So non-enrollment certainly is not a random phenomenon. There, there were differences among these groups. When we looked at the outcomes and adjusted, we, conducted, we did a multivariate model to look at how the outcome associated with the non-enrollment. It turned out that uh, non-enrollment status was independently associated with higher in-hospital mortality with odds ratio of about 1.4. And that didn't matter whether the patient was ventilated using high frequency or using conventional ventilation. The p-value for interaction was 0.55. So non-enrollment was associated independently with an increased risk of death. Among the Organizational factor. So that's the kind of the second part of the study is to look at the organizational factor. We ask ourselves, why do these centers vary in non-enrollment? Is it, for example, that they have too many other studies? It wasn't the case. It, this wasn't significant predictor. Was it because they have fewer full-time research staff? That wasn't the case either, at least in our analysis. The one factor that appeared to be significantly associated with high non-enrollment rate is the number of patients who were documented on screening logs as, generally speaking, or the screened and non-eligible. In other words, it appeared to be that the more you screened and the more you document, the more likely that you will have eligible non-randomized. And I think that's an interesting finding that suggests perhaps part of the higher or lower non-enrollment rate could be related to reporting, and that maybe some centers vary in the way they document or report e e Certainly, but we don't have data to support this, some of the differences may be related to different patient population. I think that's quite possible. But at least part of it could be related to the way we document and report non-enrollment.
0: So there's a lot there to discuss. Dr. Lanspa, I wanted to just talk about the large take-home point. So non-enrolled patients had a higher mortality than patients who were enrolled in the study, no matter what mode of ventilation non-enrolled patients received. Despite the fact that those who received the high-frequency oscillator outside of the trial at baseline had more severe ARDS, and those who received conventional ventilation outside the trial had less severe ARDS and appeared to be less sick. So is it fair to say that the take-home message is that enrollment in this trial saved lives regardless of ventilator mode?
2: Well, Nitin, I think that might be a little bit of an overstatement. Uh, I think a safer message would be that patients who participate in a trial are different than patients who are eligible but don't participate in a trial. Dr. Robbie's group noted that patients who were eligible but were excluded did have a higher mortality, although non-significant. It was non-significantly higher mortality than those who participated in the trial. And I think there's basically two factors at play here. So if we look at patients who received high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, those patients who were not enrolled had greater lung injury than those who were enrolled. In that case, it's unsurprising. You know, One would expect that non-enrolled patients would have a higher mortality because they had greater lung injury and they were different than the patients who were enrolled. On the other hand, if you compare the patients who received conventional ventilation, those who participated in the oscillate study had worse injury and greater disease severity than the patients who did not. And one would expect that those managed in the study should have had worse mortality, but they ended up having better survival rates. And a plausible explanation for that is that patients on the study had better adherence to lung protective ventilation. Patients in the oscillate study had lower tidal volumes, higher PEEP values. And I find this result fascinating because it's a great counterexample to the incorrect assumption that clinicians do a better job choosing the best treatments for their patients than would randomization. So it does appear that clinical trial participation in oscillates conventional ventilation arm did confer a survival advantage over conventional ventilation and usual care, and I find this study reminiscent of the SUPPORT trial, which was the surfactant positive pressure and oxygenation randomized trial. And in that trial, the infants that were randomized to either treatment arm had a higher survival than non-enrolled patients, as well as higher survival than historical controls. And the presumption was that those infants ended up getting better ventilator management than the other group. So I think that both those studies, the oscillate and support studies, demonstrate that usual care is not always best care. And... Clinicians who treat their patients with conventional ventilation outside of the oscillate study ended up having less adherence to best practice. And that evidence for lung protective ventilation has been around for over 15 years, and it's been consistently associated with improved outcomes, but continues to be inconsistently implemented, even at centers that participated in the original lung protective ventilation study.
0: So, Dr. Rabia, I wanted to follow up on something that Dr. Lanspa said because I think it's very interesting, and, and it makes a lot of sense that maybe the the reason the outcomes were different in the eligible non-enrolled patients is that you know, there was less adherence to evidence-based care. However, it was surprising to me because these are centers that that were you know involved in the study that are. well-versed in randomized trials, and those are the centers that I would suspect are most likely to adhere to evidence-based medicine, whether patients are enrolled in a trial or not. So I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of the study findings. Could they be explained basically by less adherence to evidence-based medicine in the non-enrolled patients?
1: The conventional ventilation protocol used in the oscillate trial was a lung protective strategy. I think that's we all agree. It's a low tidal volume, high P ventilation strategy, which is based on current evidence, supported by systematic reviews, etc. I think the key is that there was high level of monitoring of protocol adherence in the trial. The the protocol adherence was essentially almost in real time by the on-site staff, very detailed protocol, and reporting any violation outside the tidal volume, for example. In addition, there was monitoring from the method center. There was feedback provided to the sites every two weeks about their performance in terms of adherence to the protocol. And there was a twenty four hour helpline for questions for physicians who have difficulties in keeping patients on the protocol now that 's a great way of implementing evidence based practices it's just amazing and uh, certainly this approach this process probably provided much 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 higher level of adherence to lung protective strategy than the usual standards. Some of it may have been protocolized. It's possible. But this this level probably provided far higher level of adherence to the lung protective strategy than the conventional ventilation. The other observation uh, also is that the differences in the OSCAR trial findings compared to the OSCAR trial finding may be related also to the exactly the same point. The OSCAR trial compared high-frequency oscillation with conventional ventilation that was not protocolized, was really the standard, kind of the standard of conventional ventilation. And in that setting, in that context, high-frequency oscillation and conventional ventilation were found not to be different. In the oscillate, where the conventional ventilation was protocolized, was evidence-based, monitored, the conventional ventilation... Was associated essentially with lower mortality than high-frequency oscillation. So try to put this together. Yes, the answer is I think high level of compliance with evidence-based practice regarding to lung protective strategy is likely. I mean we know this. So we is likely to be responsible for the observed differences in our current study and may explain the different findings of Oscar and the oscillate.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Arabi, and I guess certainly. You know, uh, most of us don't have a 24-hour helpline or a research coordinator in real time making sure all the supportive care adheres to evidence-based practices, so certainly that could make a difference. And now, Dr. Lansfield, I wanted to uh, dig a little deeper into the, the half of eligible patients who are not enrolled. And, and I think you, you made a point in your editorial that's similar to one that Dr. Robby made during this podcast in that it appears that non-enrollment was not random. And so I wanted to explore the aspect of, of the physicians. It looks like about a quarter of patients who were non-enrolled, the reason was physician refusal. So that's the part that, you know, if we say we have equipoise, should we just, you know, why are a quarter of patients not being enrolled by, by the physicians? So I guess I'd, I'd like to explore that with you and ask you, you have a hypothesis why physicians weren't enrolling their patients, you know, again, a, a quarter of the non-enrolled patients.
2: Well, I suspect the main hypothesis for why physicians didn't enroll is because they thought they knew better. And so, you know, a big challenge with medical culture and I suppose particularly with critical care in general is that physicians are reinforced to make decisions with incomplete information and then end up becoming comfortable doing so. I think ours is a specialty where every single physician is the world's best physician. So, you know, we all have cognitive limitations, we all have biases and these end up limiting our ability to make correct decisions, and they contribute to incorrect perceptions that end up leading uh, to lack of equipoise. I can think of one of my mentors who participated in the original low tidal volume study said, well, I can't imagine anyone could manage a ventilator better than me. And then it turns out that a study protocol that simply just said, give six milliliters per kilogram, you know, willy-nilly to everybody, ended up outperforming him. And so we all have these uh, biases, and I think one of the challenges in uh, performing clinical studies in the intensive care unit is, one, we have surrogate consent, which already causes a selection bias. I'm not advocating that we remove informed consent, but patients who have a social network or a family member who can provide surrogate consent are different than those who don't that's not something that we'll easily overcome. However, 25% of the uh, patients who were eligible and not enrolled had a physician refuse to enroll due to lack of equipoise. And I think that presents a problem because these are physicians who have agreed to participate in the study. And I think it's internally inconsistent at best for a study clinician to say, I have equipoise about this research study, so I'm okay with participating in it. And then simultaneously exclude eligible patients from enrollment based on some expectation of superiority for one of the treatments. And so I would think that if a physician wants to participate in a study, they need to admit equipoise at onset and agree to enroll patients. If physicians can't put those beliefs aside, perhaps they shouldn't be the sort of physician who enrolls in that particular clinical trial. I think that the nice thing about Dr. Arabi's study and the oscillate study is that we actually have this data, and that's not always present in uh, other studies. I have concerns about the validity of a lot of other studies that have potential for similar selection bias. One nice thing about the oscillate study is we, we have the data to um, demonstrate that selection bias was present, and it would be nice if we had future studies that also collected such data.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Lanceman. I would agree with you, and and I think that leads me to my next question for Dr. Arabi. To really study for what Mike was talking about in terms of selection bias, we need to have data like you provided in this paper. And this, though, I, I don't know how it must have been quite a challenge for you in terms of funding is tight for studies, getting the resources to follow the non-enrolled, I know you didn't, you followed baseline characteristics and outcome and mode, but it still requires more resources than just the awesome undertaking of doing a randomized clinical trial. So the question to me is really obviously for all of us, it's about trying to apply study findings to our everyday care in the ICU. And I think studies like yours are, are extremely helpful. So I wonder how can we practically do what you've done in your study? in more clinical trials going forward. We'd like to learn from your experience.
1: I think our study highlights a few important issues that we need to take in consideration when we conduct future trials. I think the striking variability in reporting E&E, eligible non-randomized, it's an interesting thing to look at, why centers vary so much. And as I said, it's one of the reasons maybe differences in patient population It's quite possible. I think that could be the reason. But also the extent of reporting E&E is certainly an important factor. And when you look at the management of clinical trials, it has focused a lot on the enrolled patients, much less so on the eligible non-enrolled. So typically, the complete reporting may not be primary focus for research staff. In addition, in the, the way clinical trials are managed, and as you mentioned correctly, that the financial compensation structure does not really take in consideration documenting eligible non-randomized. For example, renumeration in the oscillate trial was based on patients who were enrolled not on patients who are eligible. So that's that's another factor that we really need to look in the future. But what what's really the most important thing for me is that the looking and documenting eligible and not randomized patients is critical. is very important. And I would not look at it as a negative thing that people reporting eligible not randomized. In fact, this is probably this is a good thing that these are if they exist are reported because interpretation of the trial finding must take in consideration the other patients, the other part of the patients who were eligible but were were not randomized. I think we, for the future, I think this should be part of the standards for clinical trials that eligible not randomized be documented, maybe monitored somehow to ensure that we have reliable and complete information on these patients. I, I think reporting and tracking transparently the eligible not randomized should be an essential part. Of the trial management of randomized control trials.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Robbie, and I, I think that's an excellent point going forward. I did want to close the podcast with a, with a question for you, Dr. Lanspa, because I go back to the patients who aren't in trials, and I've always yeah, I wonder, as we look at, for example, many of the ARDS trials, and we see the control group mortality is decreasing over the last 15 years as lung protective strategies of ventilation have been implemented and meticulous supportive care and early antibiotics and so forth are now routine. But I, I still wonder what's going on outside of the clinical trial. And, and this study was an eye-opener for me to sort of say, well, we may be in a similar place outside of trials, and, you know, I think the data that's out there is conflicting about this. So I know you've done work with uh, electronic protocols to increase adherence to evidence-based practices, and obviously that's outside of trials, and I would like to close the podcast with sort of an idea for a path forward for those patients who are not enrolled, and I'd, I'd like to hear your comments about what we can do for those patients.
2: So I think the big question that is raised for me when I uh, read Dr. Rabi's study is not so much whether or not participation in a clinical trial is good for you or not, but more why are we not able to actually perform what we know is good for a patient? And so, as I said earlier, we know that low tidal volumes are good for patients, and yet we seem to have a problem implementing that. And uh, in a study, it seems that we are better at implementing it because there is an incentive to adhere to certain protocols, whether it be the main study protocol or co-intervention, such as glucose control or fluid administration. And in fact, the ARDS network has attempted to try to do co-intervention controls of glucose and fluid administration according to what they thought were best practices at the time. And the scientific reason for that is to minimize unnecessary variation but it has the side effect of overall better care. At my institute at Intermountain, we are very big on uh, implementation of electronic protocols. And one of my colleagues and mentor who co-authored the editorial with me, Dr. Alan Morris, for most of his career has been championing electronic protocols for supporting clinical decisions at our institution. And one of the reasons for relying on electronic protocols is because we have such a difficulty actually implementing what we know works. And I think the big achievement of medicine over the next few decades is not going to be discovering a new therapy, but rather discovering how we can actually implement what we know to be beneficial. And so one way to implement something like this for patients would be to take the results of any sort of uh, trial that we think to be beneficial and to refine it iteratively in a protocol that basically takes a lot of clinician decision-making out of the picture. And I know that sounds very unsettling for a lot of clinicians to uh, give up the wheel, so to speak, but it turns out that we don't always know what's best. And even explicit paper protocols still end up having poor adherence compared to an electronic protocol and we can configure a computerized protocol for a decision to support with much more detail than a text guideline or a paper-based flow diagram and we can carry out a lot of these things with very little interclinician variability. The result, though, is that a clinician has to be willing to modify whatever personal style of clinical management that they're used to and we have to acknowledge that protocols don't need to be perfect. There's a lot of different ways to approach a clinical problem But if you pick one approach and try to implement it, you can at least get reproducible clinical decisions, and you can iteratively refine it and try to improve on it.
0: Thanks so much for a great discussion. I think this study and our discussion serve as an important reminder that just as we seek to find new and innovative treatments to save the lives of critically ill patients, we must at the same time ensure that all critically ill patients receive the therapies that are known to reduce mortality. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.